Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. My kind of trouble doesn't take vacations. in a flick this is where we review the good the bad and the absurd tonight's episode lone wolf mcquade beware spoilers coming to you from the ranger regional office in el paso texas my name is don and to my right we have our comic book guy john i work alone and to my left we have the professor ken hola hola gentlemen uh how are you guys doing i'm doing well yeah good and what, what what about you how are you doing uh all things being considered equal i'd rather be in philadelphia tonight we are entering round four in the search of the best 80s classic action movie according to the three guys we each came up with a list of 20 movies and from those lists we compiled one master list of 10 before anyone starts yelling at me about why isn't die hard on the list Spoiler alert, it's not. Or Aliens. Guess what? That's not on there either. I'll tell you why. Simply put, both of those movies are just too good. Anyone who is a fan of any of these movies that we are talking about will understand where I'm coming from. And if you don't and you still want to yell at me, please do. Leave us a comment and let's discuss it. And if it's a compelling enough argument, then we'll read it on the show. Now, in order to qualify for the three guys master list, the movie must contain a specific set of criteria. That being a movie macho hero with quotable one-liners played by a recognizable star, an over-the-top villain, a montage sequence, over-the-top chase scenes, epic fight scenes, a villain speech or monologue, a final showdown, an oh-crap death for our bad guy, franchise potential, around a 90-minute runtime, a high body count, and this just added a cool ride. With all that in mind, tonight we are reviewing the 1983 Lone Wolf McQuaid. The reason why this made our list, it's easy. Chuck Norris. We've seen Stallone, we've seen Schwarzenegger, and we've seen Swayze. So it was only a matter of time before we got to this 80s action icon. Lone Wolf McQuaid was released on April 15, 1983. It was directed by Steve Carver, the screenplay by B.J. Nelson, and it stars Chuck Norris, David Carradine, Barbara Carrara, Leon Isaac Kennedy, L.Q. Jones, Robert Beltran, and a bunch of other actors. Barbara Carrara, where do you know her from? You know, it's funny because I was watching her and watching her and from far away shots, I'm like, oh, that's got to be her. But then when it got to close-up shots, I'm like, ah, I don't know. I know her from Never Say Never Again, which makes her a Bond girl. And what year did that come out? 1983. Same year as this movie. She did both. How did this movie do, Don? Uh, this movie was made for $5 million and it brought in... 12 million dollars is that good for 1983 you know what i have no idea i don't know if that's good for any 83 um especially not in 
not in Hollywood. It was it was definitely down there on the list. 1983 was the year of Return of the Jedi, and that was the 800 pound gorilla. It doubled the closest competition, and um, the other movies of '83 that were pretty big at the time. Um, for so this is April that it's being released, and then um, your June movies are uh, Flashdance, Trading Places, War Games. And then a little later, you have Octopussy and Superman 3. Would we say that this is Chuck Norris's breakout role? Um, in the Pantheon, what is this, like his second or third film? You know, no. This no. was actually his fifth or sixth film of the 80s. So he had a lot of movies in the 80s. And he was a really busy guy in the 80s. He did something like 14 movies. And he, in 80... Uh, in 80, 81, he, he does a movie each. In 82, he does two. In 85 and 86, he does three movies a year. And in 87, he doesn't do any. And in 89, he doesn't do any. So he's a really busy guy. And he continues on with this busy, steady streak in through the 90s. And the baffling thing that I am perplexed, how can he continue on this trajectory of doing pretty much at least one movie every year? In 1993, he starts Walker, Texas Ranger. So he's got a television series that he's doing on top of this type of a schedule. So he he was a really busy guy. Really busy guy. Yeah, but did you ask me if this was his peak? No, I would say this is his breakout. This is what kind of launched him into... You know, he had done some action movies before this, but I feel like this is the one he's most recognizable for. This is actually also the first one that he sported the beard. Yeah, yeah, I heard that. Um, I don't know if this is his breakout because I think the Octagon, Eye for an Eye, those are those are movies that come up when you talk about Chuck Norris. Um, if you really want to talk breakout, I think it's when he fights Bruce Lee in Rome in Way of the Dragon. Well, I'm talking about starring in an action movie. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could go to the other two that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. This one is actually his highest rated movie. What about David Carradine? How did you feel about him in this movie? I think that David Carradine is fun as a villain. Um, did you know that they originally wanted Bruce Lee to play uh, Rowley? Wouldn't that have been something? Yeah, and then... Uh, they wanted to... I guess they, if they had gotten and he had unfortunately passed away in 1973, it would have been labeled as the rematch of the century. Yeah. Did you hear about the special stipulation in David Carradine's contract? That he could not be seen being defeated in hand-to-hand combat. Imagine having that in your contract. Pretty crazy. Speaking of of not a dissimilar thing, this guy, David Carradine, I was so surprised when I saw that David Carradine has still an upcoming movie that is being yet to be released. It's like, what? Didn't he pass away like 10 years ago? 2009, he passes away. He has 239 acting credits. And since his 2009 death, 14 movies with David Carradine are on IMDb. 14. What the fuck? Yeah, well, he was a busy guy before he died. Mm -hmm. So... But, you know, and then I started, you know, I started pondering a little bit about it. You know, how many movie projects, you know, get a red light and a green light or they get shelved or they get set aside or they get scrapped. You know, there's, you know, there are countless stories that we have never heard of that are sitting on a shelf somewhere, somewhere in production. Right. And so that had to be what this is all about. But I was I was stupefied when I saw that he had, wait, 2013, 2014. 2021 what yeah uh 
projects clearly sitting on the shelf for quite some time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, crazy. The other crazy thing that I read was that uh, both David Carradine and Chuck Norris refused stunt doubles in this movie. They actually choreographed their own fights. Yeah. The film opens with McQuaid involved in an intense battle with Mexican bandits and a gang of horse thieves from which he emerges unscathed while saving several Texas state troopers. Shaking off the dust, McQuaid returns to El Paso, Texas to attend the retirement ceremony of his fellow ranger and close friend, Dakota. After the party, his commander attempts to curb his lone wolf attitude by insisting he work with local Texas state trooper K.O. Ramos, a tough but clean-cut and polite Latino. While out horseback riding with his daughter, his daughter's horse runs wild and she is saved by Lola Richardson. She invites them to a party where Raleigh Wilkes displays his prowess in martial arts and some of his thugs get into a fight with Ramos. After settling the fight, Richardson and McQuay leave the party and have a romantic encounter. She shows up at his house and cleans it. Despite McQuaid's annoyance that he does not need a woman to take care of him, Richardson seems to start breaking through his rough exterior within a couple of days they are together. Uh, so what did you guys think of this opening? I thought it set up the hero pretty well, especially that uh, camera shot of him up on that little mesa with the sun behind him. Oh yeah, for sure. Just the opening credits. I mean, to me right away it screamed CRJ Leon. I was just reading about spaghetti westerns. I guess that's what he was famous for. Yeah. And that's what this is supposed to be like. Have you never heard of Spaghetti Westerns? I had heard of them, but I didn't know the definition of them. Name one. Uh, I would say almost any Clint Eastwood movie. <laughs> good answer. Good any answer. Clint Eastwood Western, I consider a, uh, okay. a Spaghetti Western. Okay, name one. <laughs> uh, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly. Oh my God, he fucking knocks it out of the ballpark. Well done, comic book guy. Now, well done. for those who don't know, since I just looked it up, uh, I guess a Spaghetti Western is considered a more violent bloody version of typical westerns it's like a harsher version of a western do you know why no because it was uh, because typically spaghetti westerns were made in italy mm. and so they're very uh, it, it cost Leon. less yeah and so they put they pushed it more and so um yeah that's why they call it spaghetti westerns mm. yeah there you go uh, an interesting tell as well is if you listen to the uh locomotive uh uh, when when they when they pull and and you hear the uh, the 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 or the whee, the high pitch is Italian, and the low pitch is the American locomotive. Oh really? Mm-hmm. I did not know that. I did not know that either. Spaghetti westerns, folks. Spaghetti westerns. Uh, this movie, I think, very much does fall into the fucking spaghetti western slash western would you call this more of an action movie or more of a western movie because i have to say i've gone back and forth is it a western more than an action or is it an action more than a western i personally think it's more of an action i think in the beginning it feels like a western but when you start introducing in the martial arts and the, the car chases and all that it starts to feel more like an action movie. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and agree with you on that comic book guy, and this doesn't happen too often. I think it turns from Western to action uh, in that opening as soon as he gets his Uzi. As soon as he gets his Uzi and he starts spraying everybody and saves the day, it is very much a Chuck Norris 
action flick. Up until that point, there's a lot of shots of uh, Chuck Norris on the Mesa looking through his viewfinder, and we're establishing just how cool he is, and we see the state troopers coming in, and we see uh, the horse thieves, and it's very much shot like what I think a, a, a Western, how a Western is shot. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, as soon, <laughs> and you even have the music. I mean, the music was very... It sounds so Sergio. Yes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that bad guy, the leader of the Horse Thieves, very Western. I mean, he just could have... You could have fit him into almost any Western as a a villain in that kind of movie. Yeah, and, and I think if you look at it now, I mean, it's very... Uh, I think it's borderline racist, right? But there's a lot of things in this movie that could be pretty borderline. Yeah, well, 80s, you know. Um, but yeah, as soon as he gets that Uzi, it, that all that that feel still kind of goes through the movie, but it's not as uh, upfront as it was in the beginning. At least that's how I saw it. So when the the lead bad guy, I can't remember what his name is, makes the comment about you know you kicked my father's teeth out. Do you think that was foreshadowing? Oh, for fuck's sakes. Uh, no, I don't think it was foreshadowing. I think, yeah, it was probably foreshadowing. Uh, Because you knew it was coming at that point. Yeah, how could you not know it, right? And again, that's where it kind of just turns. Yeah, pretty crazy that uh, he decides to confront them face-to-face. And he doesn't even flinch when when they shoot him up up on the bluff there. Yeah, and you know, this whole time I'm watching it, I'm thinking to myself... You know, I don't think I've ever seen this movie. And if I'm really thinking about it, I don't know how many early Chuck Norris movies I've actually seen. So I've seen Way of the Dragon, uh, the one with Bruce Lee. And, you know, after that, I don't think I really start watching Chuck Norris until the missing in action films. Uh, Invasion USA, The Hero and the Terror, and then up into the 90s with Firewalker and and a lot of those movies. So, And in general, they're all kind of forgettable and they're all kind of the same right i mm-hmm. remember thinking when mission uh missing in action came out i'm thinking oh he's trying to do stallone from rambo right that's immediately where my head goes mm-hmm. but going back and watching it here you know you hear about the myth of chuck norris and i think that when he's standing on there and they're shooting at him like you were saying i think it just fit you know it, you you roll your eyes at it and you're kind of like oh for fuck's sakes but it that particular one, it kind of had a charm to it. And I think that's very much Chuck Norris. It's hard to explain, but he just has this kind of charm. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the fact that he's willing just to stand there defiantly like that, he has no backup. He is on his own, and apparently he's comfortable being on his own, taking on however many bad guys. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> comfortable enough to just walk down. I'm thinking if I'm the bad guys, why am I not shooting him in the fucking head, right? I, I think part of it comes down to is they are intrigued by him. How intimidating is it just to have one person walking up to all of the bad guys? He's walking. He's not shooting. He's not doing anything flamboyant. They are curious. They also make mention that you don't want to kill a ranger because that'll bring down a firestorm on you. Apparently, they didn't have any problems because they were about to. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, they certainly didn't care about the state troopers. Bunch have, of buffoons. Have either of you seen Expendables too? Yes. Did you notice in that movie they referred to him as Lone Wolf? Oh, or yeah. Or as a Lone Wolf? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I love uh, how kind of a callback to this movie. Oh, yeah. Way back when? As soon as, you find, uh, as soon as you find out that Chuck Norris is in the Expendables, I think, you know, makes sense. Mm-hmm. For sure. 
So he gets a machine gun and he takes out nine of them. What the heck? I know. I love that when they zoom out and you can see all the bodies spread out all over the entire area. I think I even blinked at that scene. Like I, I just looked away for a second, looked back and I'm like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. I mean, you, he starts firing and he gets every, he pretty much does a circle, you know, and, and fires his Uzi, uh, his Mac 10, by the way. And I'm, what I'm thinking is, if you're standing behind him, how come you haven't shot him in the head already? I don't know. I guess I guess you just have to chalk it up to fucking Chuck Norris, right? Pretty much. And would you say that's over-the-top action? Oh, yeah. Yeah, see? And that's what I think of when I think of 80s action flicks. So he saves the day. He. Uh, we also kind of get our introduction to Ramos, who every time I see him, I don't know, it's the Star Trek nerd in me. I want to say Chakotay. Because he was in Voyager. That's where I know his face from. Mm-hmm. I've seen him on the promos. Yeah. And Not so, that I watched Voyager. And so I kept saying, go to Cote, but you know, seeing him in a younger version of him is kind of a fun, fun ride. Yeah. So McQuaid kills the entire gang except for the leader because he's got to arrest him. Right. And then uh, he is late for a retirement ceremony. Tell me... As he was driving his car and he turns on his lights to get the crosswalk people to disperse so he could go through the traffic light, big dick maneuver. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm sure that happens all the time. Oh, I'm sure it does. But every time I've seen something like that happen, I'm thinking, oh, that that's just, that's bad. Why? Why is it bad? It's abuse of power. Yeah, maybe. It kind of sets up, you know, who he is. Well, he's he just, just doesn't a renegade, get, yeah. He doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, absolutely not. So after the retirement party that uh, they held for his buddy uh, Dakota, he gets called into the captain's office or the boss's office, however. Captain. Yep. He gets called into the captain's office like, you know, a bunch of other uh, characters we're going to see on Almost this list. Almost every action movie involving a cop always has to have the a-hole commander, captain, whatever. It is a classic trope in our action movies. When you're a cop, you have to get called into the captain's office. And in this particular instance, McQuaid gets called into his captain's office to be told that he has a partner. And, you know, as I'm watching this film and as it's kind of progressing, I start to see some glimpses of films that will come out years later. This almost serves as a blueprint to it, right? Because when he says, uh, McQuaid, this is your new partner, and it's K.O., and we're like, oh, we've met this character. You know what the first thing I thought of was? Lethal Weapon. See? And then there's going to be other bits in this movie that I go, huh, you know what that reminds me of? Lethal Weapon. It, it just kind of dawned on me that uh, Norse did this first, and, and these filmmakers put down this blueprint. So I think even if this isn't the greatest action movie ever made, you still kind of have to give it up for kind of setting, setting the tone, setting the bar of all of these other films that we get to enjoy years later. Uh, and a lot of them way better, but it's because of this one. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but that's what I was thinking when I saw that part. Simply put it, it's a diamond in the rough. And then after immediately after this, then we get a very brief meeting where we meet uh, Wilkes. So now we have to meet our bad guy. And it's David Carradine, and he is doing a trade with somebody, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what did you guys think of David Carradine as the villain? He was a good villain. I don't know. I I was having a hard time just buying him a little bit as a bad guy, especially early on. And I think it's because I was such a fan of the time, you know, 
back then of the show Kung Fu where he was the hero of the show. So seeing him as a bad guy, eh, it was a little difficult for me. Also seeing him as the main bad guy, knowing that, you know, nowadays, you know, we see him in little things here and there. The most famous thing I could think of that he's been famous for in the last couple decades was Kill Bill. Um, I don't know. I struggled with him as that. I almost wish kind of they had used somebody else. But yeah. he was such a big name at the time. It makes sense. Yeah, and and I bought him as the bad guy, and I thought it was kind of a good turn for him. The only thing I didn't really enjoy was that he was a he was a Bond villain. Yeah, he does come across that way. I guess when they were making the movie, uh, Carradine might have even looked to someone and said, "Who who is this character?" And someone might have even said, "Play him like you would a Bond villain." I felt a little bit different. I felt like he was more of, I mean, we're talking about the spaghetti Westerns that he was more of the black hat villain, you know, that you would see like in good, bad and the ugly, you know, with the little cigarette and kind of just holding it and giving a couple little puffs here and there. And, you know, it just gave me that, the way he walked and talked gave me that, that Western feeling. Yeah. I mean, there, there are definitely undertones there. And I think it, now that you say that it's probably a mesh of both. Right, but there was, for me, and maybe even for you, Professor, there definitely was a Bond villain vibe running through it. But, you know, with the cigar and, and the way he held himself, yeah, very much a, a man in black mm-hmm. villain from a Western, for sure. I, I think it's because he smiles that he comes across as a Bond villain, that he, he is very uh, he is very cold-hearted, but he does it with a smile on his face. So Wilkes kills a couple of people and double crosses them and mentions something about, you know, you have to have trust when you're a bunch of bad guys. And, you know, ironically enough, there was no trust. And so now we've been introduced to our our main villain. In the meantime, we get a little bit of McQuaid's backstory, I guess. He has to go pick up his daughter. And, you know, this is something that you don't see in movies a lot. Uh, The ex-husband and the ex-wife friends kind of getting along that's crazy isn't it so you can kind of gauge what kind of guy mcquade is just by his interactions with the ex-wife and the daughter right Mm -hmm. Uh, always focused on work that and how many movies do we see where the father especially someone like chuck norris gets along with the daughter's boyfriend and doesn't intimidate him at first i thought he was going to do that at first but then he sticks his hand out to shake it yeah me too me too from what I've read, it's because, and I guess I didn't catch it the first time when I watched this, they both have military backgrounds. And so that's why he shows the boyfriend some respect. And during this time, we do oh so briefly get a little shooting montage. We just have uh, McQuaid doing a, a little bit of target practice. Oh my God, that's absolutely right. How, how many montages of him uh, doing uh, target practice do we get in this film? Did anybody count? I, I was thinking, I mean, are you talking about the actual series of montages or shots of the montage? The series. I would say there was two, three. I think there was like three or four. Because I know there's one. I feel like every time I blinked, he was either without his shirt or his shirt was open and he was shooting or... His shirt was just open a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, rolling on the ground, doing the, the roll in the shoot. Uh, did anybody notice his style of shirt? Did it look familiar to anybody? Oh, the the, the button pattern. Yeah. Um, well, not the button pattern so much, but the way the, the shirt. Yeah, the way the shirt folded, it kind of looked like a, uh, a karate gi. If you take all the buttons off, it folds over and it looks almost like what Luke Skywalker wears. Oh, okay. Does, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. For me, 
and I could be totally way off, it reminded me the outfit uh, from the sheriff in Blazing Saddles. Uh, maybe the color and the badge, but I think for the style for me, mm-hmm. it reminded me of what Dalton wears. Yeah. The white shirt, but without all the buttons. Mm-hmm. And the, and then I started thinking, you know, McQuaid's a cool motherfucker. Doesn't say much. Kicks some ass. <gasps> when they were writing Roadhouse, did they mirror Dalton after McQuaid? I mean, does this movie go that far back as influences? Uh-huh. I bet you it does. Maybe Mc- not so much Dalton, but, I, I, you know, this movie. McQuaid could be his long lost father. Could be. No, no, no. I think we already established that uh, it was Wade. Wade yeah. Garrett. Wade Garrett. Yeah, yeah. If you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to last week's podcast. We get KO. He also briefly shows up and uh, and he ends up being ditched by the superior driving of McQuaid in his, well, in his rig. Well, before that, he shows up to the house, gets scared by the wolf dog, goes inside, and McQuaid pulls a gun on him. And points the gun right in his face. It's a great way to start out your relationship with somebody. Well, why are you breaking and entering? He didn't break anything, but he did enter. He was yelling the guy's name for like ever just trying to get, and then he ran from the dog. Yeah, but I mean, he just went inside of the house. Yeah. That's okay? I think McQuaid recognized him right away. Didn't have to keep pointing the gun in his face. Of course he did. He's fucking Chuck Norris. Well, why didn't he just roundhouse kick him? Well, because the gun was easier and he probably wanted answers. Um, so, yeah, K.O. comes to get him. They're partners. And McQuaid says, nope, takes off. And then this is where we get, you know, not really a chase, but a, a fun little sequence with McQuaid driving and K.O. following him. What would you guys think of McQuaid's truck? It is its own character in the movie. You know, it, it looks so disheveled. And it looks so uh, tattered. It looks every bit as tired and uh, worn out as McQuaid's place. 100%. Did it remind you of another vehicle? Nothing springs to mind per se. What are you thinking of? Uh, the Interceptor from oh, okay. the Road Warrior. I can see that. You know, and, and, yeah. and the sirens on the top and the way they didn't make normal siren sounds. And then he had a blower. When he says, you know, uh, whatever he says to KO. Yeah, and you hear it. Yeah, and it shows him turning it on and he takes off. And I'm like, oh my God, that's like the Mad Max car. So, I don't know. I just put that together. It was dirty. (laughs) Well, it was a Ram. It was a Ram. 1983 Dodge Ram Charger. Yeah. So then we get to the horse stables and we meet his daughter. And his daughter is... uh, on a horse that gets spooked and we have another rider come and save saves her by stopping the horse and thus we meet lola lola whose husband was mysteriously killed by they don't know who but you can already guess that it was raleigh i mean that wasn't too hard to figure out that mystery yeah well i mean what the hell is she doing with him it's gotta be uh it's gotta be business Right, I know they kiss. It's it's one of those instances where the bad guy is with the leading actress, and she belongs with the hero, and we all know it. But for some odd reason, they're always attracted to the bad guys. I almost felt like this was going into you know you guys love to quote Bond that this was kind of a Bond trope of either she's being blackmailed by the bad guy or 
she's secretly going to try to look like she's helping the good guy, but turns out she really works with the bad guy. Immediately after this, we have McQuaid and Wilkes. They meet formally for the first time. Is this at the boxing match? It is immediately before the boxing match, and then Lola invites him to the boxing match, and he is saying no, but Dakota says, yes, we're going. So they go and they check out Wilk showing off. Uh, That's his, all it is. Yeah, his, He's strutting around like a little rooster. Uh, showing off his karate skills. Did you catch the license plate on his car, on Raleigh's car? What was it? Karate. Oh, that's right. That's with right. a C. Yeah, spelled with a C. And uh, you have these three Joe Schmoes come into the ring, and it's just Raleigh showing off. And, you know, at the end of it, everyone's cheering. And then he says, you know, how lucky we are to have our very own J.J. McQuaid in the audience. Uh, how would you like to fight? Let's put up some money. And Chuck Norris is so fucking cool, right? I don't fight for money. But... You can see in Wilkes's eyes, he is going to get J.J. to fight. That's why I wondered if the uh, the fight on the dance floor with Ramos was set up so that Raleigh could try to start something. Oh, 100%. That's 100% why it was uh, set up. And, you know, poor Ramos. Ramos is always getting his ass kicked. Mm-hmm. Always getting punched in the face, this, that, and the other. Uh, but... McQuaid comes to the rescue, and then right before we square off Wilkes versus McQuaid, Lola has to stop it. I did like the line about Raleigh said something along the lines of, my my guys were just having some fun, and McQuaid just gets in his face and says, you want to have some fun with me? <laughs> he says, you want to join the fun? Or you want to yeah. join the fun? I, I, I thought that was good for our action hero, kind of the one-line response. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. And you know what else happens during this time? And it was really bizarre. And it made me laugh out loud. We get our first introduction to Falcone. He's got, he's got the binoculars. He has this little maniacal laugh. And then he's whipping around in that little wheelchair. It's like, you are so comical. Talk about a James Bond villain. No shit. Right? I mean, you put him and Carradine's uh, character together. You have Blofeld and fucking Mini-Me from Austin Powers. Well, I kept trying to figure out, especially early on in this movie, I'm like, is this guy the big boss or is Raleigh the big boss and this guy's a henchman? What yo, how? What is their relationship? Right. I, I thought that the little guy was the big guy yeah. uh, uh, until we find out that they're partners, I guess, or sure. on you know, mm-hmm. equal well, the partners, crime bosses. But... You know, one has double-crossed the other. Right, sure. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that. Uh, yeah. The other thing we get introduced to is apparently, you know, J.J. McQuaid likes his pearl beer. Oh, staple. Do you think that they paid a lot of money for the amount of time that he drinks pearl beer in this movie? Is pearl beer a real thing? Oh, yeah. I went and looked at their website. Yeah, it's a, it's a real thing. Well, they got sponsored then. Yeah, yeah. I'll bet you... I'll bet you they did. Yeah. Well, I just love that he goes up to the bartender and he's like, uh, he goes, what can I get you? Pearl beer. He goes, well, I got Coors. I got Michelob. Never mind. And then she goes, uh, top shelf and immediately comes up a Pearl beer. So Lola and McQuaid, they decide to go off and have a little drink. And I guess, I don't know, get to know each other a little bit. They struck me curious. Like, why would she be, you know, uh, smitten with him? Because it's the whole bad boy thing. It's the whole cowboy thing. I sh- I compared it to uh, 
in Tombstone when Josie just gets absolutely enamored by a Wyatt Earp the moment she sees him and she says, I want one, right? I think that's the mystique of it all. Um, Okay. I also chalked it up to, especially after finishing the movie, that she may have originally got with him because she saw him as the only guy that could basically take care of Rowley and get her out from underneath him. So she was leaning towards him to help her out of a bad situation. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Yeah. Now this bar scene, there is a the guy that gets what punched by her and then knocked out by uh, by Chuck Norris. Do you know who that is? No. Who? Kane Hodder. Is it really? Yeah. And where do we know him from? I don't know. Where do we know him from? Ken, do you know him? No. He's Jason from the Friday the Thirteenth. From several of the Friday Thirteenth movies. And so what happens? Up. Oh, guess what? McQuaid. He's got to fight again. But you notice with his fights, his fights are over faster than Dalton's were. Well, yeah. Chuck Norris just takes him out quick. Yeah, I mean, he's got a uppercut and a right foot that, you know, fucking knocks you out, mm-hmm. you know. Meanwhile, Sally and her boyfriend Bobby witness the hijacking of a U.S. Army convoy. Bobby is shot and killed by the hijackers, who then cause Sally to be hospitalized when they shove her car into a ravine. McQuaid more readily works with K.O. to find out who did this to his daughter and her boyfriend. K.O.'s computer skills allow him to track the errant convoy. At an illegal garment factory, they pick up a young delinquent named Snow, who is reluctant to talk until Dakota points a Mac-10 in his general direction and empties the magazine. In retaliation for disrupting his operations, Wilkes asphyxiates Dakota in his house and also has Snow killed. Dakota's murder attracts the attention of FBI Special Agent Jackson, who works with Ramos and McQuaid. The trail leads them to Wilkes, revealed as an arms merchant who is hijacking U.S. arms shipments for his illicit weapons sales. So, you know, the story has to pick up somehow, and and McQuaid has to really get involved in this whole Wilkes situation and what's going on in his town. So what better way to bring him into the situation than to put his little girl in danger. As soon as we find out that McQuaid has a daughter, there's red flags going off all over. Guess what? She's going to be targeted like every other action movie out there, right? So It's a common trope. Conveniently, Bobby and Sally are on this cliff and, you know, they're kind of messing around being teenagers or adults, I guess, if you will. And over the cliff, all this illegal uh actions going on uh this convoy is getting hijacked and they see it happen they watch the drivers get shot and then well he he sees it sally doesn't oh she's in the car she stays in the car so he says she doesn't see the 88 flares they put out on the highway (laughs) she sees nothing right and then conveniently another car is able to pull up Right next to them, practically. Without any of them noticing on a dirt road. Okay? And why is that car there right next to them? Because, conveniently, (laughs) we have to make sure that McQuaid's daughter gets entered into this story. So, naturally, we have to kill the boyfriend. Why don't they shoot Sally, too? That's what I wanted. They've already shot the boyfriend, you know, why, unless they didn't know she was in the car and they just decided to push the car over anyway, but it didn't make any sense why they didn't just shoot her. I feel like as soon as she screamed after they shot him, they they knew she was in the car. 
obviously, I think they were killed for just witnessing it. Maybe they didn't know so much it was McQuaid's daughter. Mm-hmm. We as the audience know, of course. So, yeah, maybe, John, that's their thinking. They didn't see her, but that's kind of a stretch. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a stretch. Well, the whole scene is kind of a stretch. Well, okay. If we're going to play that game. This, <laughs> okay, let's this, move on. This whole movie is let's kind move of a on. stretch. So McQuaid finds out that his daughter was hurt, and she, he rushes to the hospital, and, you know, she's alive. Uh, but it, it, but it's at this point that, you know, he needs to find out what's going on. So he's going to ask KO for help. The guy in the chair trope is played very well by KO at this point, right? Cause he gets to sit at the computer and he gets to magically pull up all of the information that McQuaid needs. Yeah, and he just so happened to get access to that account. He guessed the password. Remember, because no, McQuaid's going to leave. He said he borrowed it. Borrowed it from somebody who just had borrowed it. Yeah, yeah but it wasn't working. Remember, yeah. and so McQuaid's going to leave, and he goes, "Oh wait." So what did he do? Fat finger it. So then they head out to uh, the site where the car was found, and guess what? It is no longer their case. It's the FBI's case now, and we, <laughs> I call him Action Jackson. FBI agent Jackson. And he comes in with that stupid tie untied. Like, you know, his, his if he was wearing a, a button up shirt, like McQuaid is, yeah. that's how far down the tie is untied. Yeah. He looked ridiculous and he, he delivers his line. So dreadfully. It's so cardboard in his delivery. Right. At first I thought we were glimpsing where maybe Die Hard had gotten their FBI agents from. You know, their trope of these FBI agents who are clearly don't know what's going on and are just going to get in the way. Uh, Very possible. And, I mean, this is also the bit where we get that uh, because K.O. was able to track down uh, some information, McQuaid and K.O. have to go find this dude, Snow, right? And so what do they do? They drive right through the fucking front gates and they stroll through the place like like nothing and there was like two guys right mcquade takes out one ko kind of takes out the other one and mcquade finishes them off and then they just go about their business no mcquade didn't finish them off yeah he did because no, there K- wasn't no ko he he he, he like hit well, he him runs like, out and punches the guy like five times and then he says not bad kid oh you're right you're there, right there was one big glaring thing that bothered me in this seat this sequence of events when you know they crash to the gate and then they kind of park the car and they jump out of the car and everything like that did you catch the way the car was parked i did not the front left bumper was almost touching the brick wall well the next scene we see one of the scenes is chuck norris running from the car from the front of the car from that bumper there is no way he could have scooted around that bumper you know, out that driver's side without having to go around the other side of the car. So, And then it's funny because later on when they show him getting back in the car or when they show Ramos getting in the car, he's walking towards that bumper and they cut to immediately him in the car. So I thought it was just poor editing on that part. Jump cuts all around. But yeah, crack me up the way they're just walking through the place and nobody pays them no mind. No, and even when the shooting starts, right? People are just... Man, you know, what did you there. think of that gun that gunfight that happens in that room when they find snow? Uh, nobody could hit anybody, God. and they were standing right in front of each other. They're right in front of each other. I mean, they give stormtroopers a bad name. 
Well, I kept thinking too, with everything, the crash into the gate and the shooting and all that, I'm wondering if this is a training video. Do you think the police use this to show them what not to do? What not to do? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But it all seems to work out because McQuaid gets his man and they escape with him, really. They they pretty much kidnap him because he wants, McQuaid wants to talk to him before the feds do. Can we talk about McQuaid when he hitches a ride on the back of that truck? It felt so Indiana Jones that from the back working his way to the front. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, I think, our only chase scene. Um, but this is our chase scene of the movie. And, you know, uh, K.O. runs back, grabs the truck, and is following him. And I love how he crashes into that gas truck or whatever it was. just happens to be parked on the side of the road. Uh, it doesn't explode right away, not until he starts his engine. Oh, right, right, yeah. Because there's ga- gas leaking and the spark from the, I guess, engine would ignite it mm-hmm. and, you know. Well, this gives us our chance for, you know, our trope of the hero running away with an explosion happening in the background. Yeah, here it is. So now they have a hostage and they want some information, so they take him to Dakota's and they uh, tie him up. Again, Great example of police procedures. Yeah, absolutely. When you are a Texas Ranger, dude, and your daughter has been harmed, you are fair game. Mm-hmm. You know, that's in like the Constitution, I think. Well, that's Dakota's the one who's just really kicking his ass. Well, he's retired. He's got nothing left to lose, mm-hmm. right? So I love the fact that they takes the uh, the machine gun, the Mac-10, you know, and fires it all around him. And, you know, KO's looking at, uh, McQuay going like, what the fuck is this guy doing? And McQuay just doesn't care. Mm-hmm. He just, he just, you know, kind of trusts him. I wonder if Dakota was McQuaid's mentor because that relationship also reminded me of Wade and Dalton. That was my first impression is when we see this whole sequence and the way that McQuaid's watching him, that there is some bond between the two of them that they obviously had worked together at one time. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I got that immediately when the uh, captain is at the retirement of Dakota talking about how he's glad that he's gone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So he, he seems like that he's probably every bit as much, well, he's probably directly responsible for McQuaid being McQuaid from here. McQuaid, he goes back to his place and he finds Lola cleaning the house. What did it remind you of? Um, it, uh, in lethal weapon too. When Leo is cleaning, uh, Riggs's uh, trailer trailer. And there's a bit where Chuck Norris goes to look for something on the porch. It's almost exactly spot on to what Mel Gibson does when he gets He's there. looking for the phone. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, you know what I mean? <laughs> the, I wonder this whole sequence just seems so weird that she just happens to go over to his house and starts cleaning his house and she knows that he likes his pearl beer, but what does she do with the beer? She throws it in the fucking trash can. I that made like he, he was going to react with thank you. Yeah, no, he takes all the shit out of the refrigerator, throws that shit away, and then starts drinking his beer. You know, she gets all pissed off and leaves, but you know he talks her into staying, and they make some more lovey time, roll around in the mud. Uh, <laughs> I love, you know, sometimes they put in, you know, subtle things with subtle meanings, you know, to reflect the fact that they roll around on the ground with the hose shooting up in the air wasn't so subtle. I was thinking the exact same thing. I'm thinking, 
is that a director call or do you think Norris was like, you know what, guys, I'm the man. That's pretty funny. So the reason why McQuaid had to go home to change is because he got information from Snow, which is going to take him to Falcone, Mm -hmm. which leaves Mayo, Dakota and Snow by themselves. So McQuaid pays Falcone a visit. And this, this again, every time I see this guy on uh, screen, Falcone, that is, discount Bond villain. That's, <laughs> that's all like Half priced? <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. That's <laughs> fucked up, dude. Um, well, I said he's not quite a Bond villain. He's kind of, you know, a little bit lesser of a Bond villain. Why is he lesser of a Bond villain? He has all the attributes of a Bond, Bond villain. Well, he does he have the a, crazy wall. He has the crazy wall. He has the maniacal laugh. He has the wheelchair. What makes him half a Bond villain, as you say? Just that he seemed like less of a Bond villain. No, he doesn't. He seemed like very much of a Bond villain. But why do you think he's half? I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> I do. I know exactly where he's going. He said it, not me. I, I just know. want to know what he means by half of a Bond villain. Just that he's not in the movie as much as the other. No, characters. no, 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 no. It comes across like you're 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 uh, indirectly commenting about his vertically challenged state of life. He, I would never he knows that. I would never. So uh, while McQuaid, I gotta is, say, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I gotta say, I fucking yeah. love the way that he leaves McQuaid by him <laughs> the, the wall bending around. <laughs> so comical it was a fucking james bond villain well he's not even being threatened or anything by mcquade at this point he just decides to have this wall spin yeah it was a dramatic exit and it was very fitting because he he warns mcquade doesn't he yes he says that something's gonna happen i don't think snow's gonna live through the night yeah that's what it was and uh you know mcquade gets that look on his face like oh shit so he jumps in his fucking uh ram charger supercharger and takes off, and in the meantime, Wilkes and his homies show up to where Dakota, K.O., and Snow are. Dun, dun, dun. And I will give anyone two guesses, but you only need one to find out what happens next. They exchange names? No, they already knew each other's names. So they're exchanging something else. Uh, What do you think they're exchanging? Uh, a sweet look towards each other? Uh, well, I think one of them wants to kill the other one, so I don't know if sweet look is the right term. You know, the trope of obviously killing the best friend or killing the mentor, killing the father. It was a pretty brutal kill. Yeah, I mean, he kind of just steps on his throat until he chokes yeah. him out. And you hear him. a little bit of cracking noise. and yeah. yeah. And I thought David Carradine pulled that off very well. It made you hate him. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what a lot of these movies do. And if it's a good action movie, uh, regardless of the type of action movie it is, if you hate the villain, you are rooting that much more for our, your hero. And when the hero gets that moment, you're like, yeah. They get their comeuppance. That's right. And he that's does right. kind of have that that psycho look on his face as he does it. Yeah. yeah. So the first time you saw this, did you think, K.O. was going to live through this experience? I think so. I thought that he is the lovable sidekick, and I knew both of them weren't going to live through the experience, and I just assumed that it would be Dakota because that fit, you know, every other movie that I've ever seen ever. Um, so, yeah, I, I 
I, I saw him pulling through. I thought he was going to at least get the crap beat out of him. I thought for sure that he was going to be all bruised up, beaten up, or at least shot, but somehow survived. You know, just something like that, that he was just going to be left behind. The big issue I had was with how Snow died. Didn't they spray him with bullets? Yeah. yeah. When you fu- When he actually comes into the house, there is one bullet in Snow. So again, are they, like you said, stormtroopers? Did they miss with the Uzi almost all the other bullets except for one time that they hit him? I wouldn't be surprised if they did. I, th- I expected him to be just covered in bullet holes. Yeah, no. Well, you also have to remember that this was a PG movie. Mm-hmm. So now Dakota's dead, and McQuaid gets there and sees his friend die, and he's all upset. Well, he doesn't really show much of a reaction. Well, he just kind of gives a little sad face for a sec, but... That's fucking Chuck Norris. That is his fucking reaction. And he had, I think on the trip over, he had steeled himself to, he is not going to be alive. He shows up at the place and there's nobody there. Right. And so he's, I think he's steeled himself that Dakota is going to be dead and hopefully nobody else is dead, but they're probably all going to be dead. So in my mind, your friend's just been killed. Your mentor possibly has just been killed. What do you go and do next? You go back and sleep with the girl. Well, yeah, there's, I mean, it's comfort, bud. Okay. And I think they're at his house, right? Because I think this is where they make an attempt on McQuaid. They come to his house at night and they kill the fucking dog. The wolf. They kill the fucking wolf. Puppy snuff film. I, I takes me right out of a movie every time that happens. I'm surprised you didn't mention it earlier. Well, I didn't want to spoil it. Warning, spoilers? Yeah. But yeah, that killing the dog really bothered me. Of course, again, they're making the bad guys look even badder. So Yeah, so McQuaid uh, fights him off. Uh, the, the assailants run away, and then he discovers his poor wolf. I think this is the most emotion you get out of Chuck Norris probably in, every, in any movie. He gets all upset, pounds the ground, and then he moves on. Picks up the dog, goes to bury it. I kept wondering if that was just a trained dog that he carried, because if it, it was excellently trained. I mean, it just goes limp as he carries it. What do you want me to tell you? Do you want to know the truth, or do you want, to, you want me to lie to you? Or do you think they used a dead animal? They really shot that dog. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was no blood, I looked. Now, the reason why uh, we have... Uh, McQuaid being all pouty is because he was put on leave without pay for withholding his information that he had and getting snow killed from the feds. That's right. So, you know, another trope, our hero has to get suspended in order to come back and save the day. But now he's not being held to the law, even though that didn't stop him before, but now he can go all renegade. So action Jackson shows up and uh, he asks for McQuaid's help. Yeah. And so they, they take off and do a little scenic air, air reconnaissance and they find what appears to be a nefarious uh, operation happening out in the middle of nowhere. The three eventually find the arms trading headquarters in the desert. Agents Burnside and Nunez are killed when they attack the headquarters. McQuaid and Ramos had tried to stop them, but ended up in a gunfight as well. McQuaid is caught and sadistically beaten by Wilkes, who then orders that McQuaid be placed in his truck and buried under a truckload of dirt, ignoring Richardson's pleas for mercy for the three men. After regaining consciousness in his truck, 
McQuaid produces a beer and pours it all over his face. Then, using his homemade supercharger system, McQuaid charges his truck through the dirt, miraculously breaking himself free, and then rescues Ramos and Jackson. All three men are weakened due to being shot and beaten. McQuaid finds that Sally has been taken by Wilkes to Mexico, a rival arms dealer known as Falcone, who has been disguising his illegal business as a pinball machine dealer, supplies McQuaid with this intelligence, claiming Wilkes has double-crossed him and he would like his competition eliminated. Falcone gives McQuaid the exact location in Mexico where Wilkes and his daughter are. So the air reconnaissance gives us a glimpse as to what is probably going to be Wilkes's secret uh, location that has the, all of the military arms that was stolen the other night that ended up having Sally's boyfriend being killed for witnessing. And so naturally we have to have a team of some sort to go infiltrate and McQuaid is part of this because of Jackson. Um, but you know, as per fucking usual and right on cue, someone's got to fuck up. So you have two hot headed FBI agents that want to, you know, get things going. They run out and they lose the element of surprise. They get shot. Everything's going to shit. Uh, McQuaid gets blinded by the searchlight from the helicopter. Can't fight back. He can't do his Chuck Norris thing. So, you know, this probably leads to, I'm just going to say it. One of my favorite scenes in this entire film. Is it really? Chuck Norris in the truck. Oh my gosh, dude. This was so fucking unbelievable. And so I don't want to say ridiculous, but it was pretty fucking ridiculous. It was outlandish. Outlandish. I feel like we got another trope here. Which is? Which is Popeye with his spinach. Yeah, maybe in this one. I don't know if you can apply it to everything. I just love that he pours the beer over his head because like, that's what gives him back his strength. Well, I was just going to ask you guys, okay? That's his spinach? Yeah, exactly. Pearl beer. couple of things. One, again, why do we not shoot the fucker in the forehead? What kind of statement are you making by trying to bury him alive? That you're fucking an idiot? Can I? That can you're I, dumb? That you're pulling exactly what the Bond villains pull off? To quote somebody who says the same thing to me almost every podcast, because our movie would be over too quick. I don't know who says that and why they say that. Okay? I just want to know. Why not shoot him in the fucking head? Anyways. It takes action movies 40 years before we finally get that solution through John Wick. Here's my question. After he pours the beer on his head, when he was being beat up, did they hit him in the legs or anything or do anything to his feet or? I don't know why. Because he strains so hard screaming out like he, you know, he is forcing that car by his own power to power out of that hole. I think he's just intense, man. I think he wants to get the fuck out of there. Yeah. I also was wondering early on, why were they digging that hole? Were they expecting him to come and bury the truck? No, apparently, yeah. They were expecting him. They were expecting to bury him alive in his truck. You know, a la Kill Bill Volume 2. That and why has he got beer in his truck? Well, that, come That's on. That's Texas. Yeah, come on. Do you really I mean, mean the you, 1980s Is that a Texas. real question? But I mean, he did drink the beer and then power out. Is that drinking and driving? Okay, but, you know, more realistically, if you have that beer in your truck in Texas and we see how much he's sweating, 
how is that hot beer going to taste anything <laughs> that you would ever want to drink? Ah, joke's on you. He has a mini refrigerator where he keeps or his maybe beer he has, cool. maybe he has a little cooler or something. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That could be. Yeah. I'm All starting right. to wonder if he's an alcoholic. Well, Char- the, his character certainly is a mess on the outside, and so is his truck, so is his home, so is his office. His office is every bit as messy as his home. So he manages to escape... Uh, being buried alive uh, with his uh, supercharger, he comes to find out that his daughter has been kidnapped. Dun, dun, dun. Did anybody see this coming? Well, no. Yeah, it's a classic (laughs) that the daughter has kidnapped. What I didn't see coming was, you know, Lola kind of being there and the fact that she was so, you know, friendly towards Raleigh and everything. At that point, I'm thinking... Oh, so she has been a double agent this whole time. Yeah, or she is playing the lesser of two evils at the moment. I mean, clearly that Ma- could be. Clearly, McQuaid is captured, right? So you got to stay on the side of who's winning at the moment. So I think she's just trying to survive. I think deep down and secretly, she's hoping McQuaid wins because I think she believes that he's a better dude than Rowley, which he is. You know, he he's our Texas Ranger, but um, yeah. I mean, the the girlfriend. Or the the uh, the female interest showing up with the bad guy, you know, makes sense. Who gets pretty much you know the crap beat out of him more, Kale or Jackson? Because Jackson gets shot twice, Kale gets beaten up. Kale is in the movie longer, so I'm gonna say Kale. Mm. Yeah, we get to see it more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kale gets beaten up in the first opening with all the uh, horse thieves. Yeah, but Jackson takes what two bullets in this movie? Just one. He takes well, one on the side. He also gets shot again at the end of the movie. I thought he was shot twice. Yeah, he was shot this scene, and he was shot in the end. What I would love to know, again, going back to McCade, you know, McQuaid in the hole, a blower, does a blower need oxygen to work? Oh, probably. You know, how did he use the blower, use that, you know, that system that he's got to get out of that hole? The uh, engine hadn't been flooded with dirt yet okay that's that's reasonable yeah thanks well here's the other question i had about this scene you've just buried the hero alive you think he's dead what's the point of kidnapping the daughter at that point for fun like did they just expect him to get out of the hole who knows why madmen do what they do i don't know i thought maybe they were going to sell her in mexico i don't know what their plans were for because they assumed the you know the good guy was dead uh, so McQuaid needs to find out where Wilkes took his daughter and he goes to Falcone. Well, actually Falcone comes to him because McQuaid answers his wife's please, I can't find Sally. And then Falcone shows up at Sally's place. Ah, so, uh, Falcone comes to see McQuaid and, uh, he figures out that he's been double crossed by Wilkes and he wants, uh, mcquay to n wilkes and so he tells him exactly where to find him yeah and they make a little deal though mcquay is intent and tries to head to the location on his own both ramos and jackson have followed him and the three head into the base for the attack after an intense battle with jackson being shot again and sally and richardson escaping sally is shot in the leg and both women are sidelined Finally, McQuaid and Wilkes engage a hand-to-hand fight with the fight leaning in Wilkes' favor until he strikes Sally, who ran to her father's aid. 
provoking McQuaid into a frenzy of hits and kicks that defeats Wilkes. McQuaid is reunited with his daughter, only to be fired upon by an injured Wilkes. Richardson steps into the line of fire to save McQuaid and is fatally wounded. Her dying words to McQuaid are that Wilkes killed her husband, forced her to be his arm candy, and that she loved McQuaid. Meanwhile, Wilkes and his remaining thugs run into a building. Jackson provides McQuaid with a grenade, and McQuaid throws it into the building, killing Wilkes and the other men. Falcone then arrives in his helicopter. McQuaid, Sally, Ramos, and Jackson take it, leaving Falcone to deal with the Mexican federales. McQuaid's ex-wife and daughter are at the ceremony where McQuaid's commander presents him, as well as Ramos and Jackson, with the Texas Award of Valor. And McQuaid congratulates his ex-wife for getting an excellent job in New Mexico. The following day, McQuaid has rented a U-Haul and is helping Sally and his ex-wife move. As they are getting ready to leave, Ramos shows up telling McQuaid he is needed as a gunman has held up a bank. Figuring he has had enough adventures and wanting to spend more time with his family, McQuaid politely declines. However, then Ramos also warns that the robber has taken hostages. McQuaid is spurred into action as the squad car speeds off his ex-wife bellows. J.J. McQuaid, you will never change. Roll credits. So now we're into our third act and, you know he has to go and save his daughter. And we know that the final showdown is coming down. Uh, what did you guys think of this whole sequence? So when McQuaid heads off to Mexico, he leaves KO behind. And when he gets down into Mexico and we see the utter poverty as he stops to get the gas, I was surprised that action Jackson was already there waiting. Yeah. He was just kind of waiting, but you had to figure he probably had, the intelligence as well. You know, McQuaid got it fell from Falcone action. Jackson's a fucking FBI agent. So, you know, it made sense. What's he doing with all that firepower? What's, he, a, what's an FBI agent doing with all that he's firepower? Prepared, he, parabellum prepare for war. And somehow he, uh, got that across the, uh, Oh, I guess he probably just flashed his badge. You don't need to search my car. That's mm-hmm. right. These aren't the droids you are looking for. <laughs> and then who shows up afterwards? K.O. So K.O. lands up in Mexico as well, and the three of them are united. Did you catch the line between Jackson and McQuaid when they saw Mayo show up? What did they say? Said, oh, great. Now how are we going to smuggle him back into Texas? (laughs) But anyways, they go and... They infiltrate uh, Wilkes' base, Kind of like, Kind of like they did before, you know, so... Mm -hmm. Maybe they learn from their mistake. And, you know, this leads us to a bunch of, uh, you know, explosions. Well, I love when Jackson's going through all of his weapons and he pulls out that crossbow. Oh, yeah. He, what did he say? Here's a, something new or give yeah. him a surprise you or don't some see shit like that. In many of these action movies, someone bringing along a crossbow. Oh, I don't know. I think a crossbow or slash bow and arrow will be uh, seen again in some of our films. That's true. So, yeah, you never know. But here's the thing, again, little things that bother me. When Jackson starts taking out the bad guys with the crossbow, none of them scream. It's not like bullets that kill you right away or something. They just get shot like in the hip or the leg or the back, and all of them are just dead instantly. 
Well, because they're poisoned arrows. You didn't pick up on that? Oh, I, I missed that. When did he dip those? Uh, he, uh, Chuck Norris, Chuck Norris's blood is poison. I was going to say, did and he, so he wipe he the dipped, sweat yes, from Chuck he, Norris? Well, not the sweat, but the blood off of Chuck Norris's fucking forehead. So eventually, McQuaid finds uh, Sally through Lola. And uh, they try to make their escape. And Sally gets shot, which I didn't see coming. But shot in the leg, so she gets to live. Yeah, kind of like the upper thigh, I think, is where she gets hit. Yeah, kind of. Which made it kind of weird that she ran to her father later. Hey, man, adrenaline. Adrenaline makes you do crazy things. Well, I just assumed that she's Chuck Norris's daughter, so she had already passed the bullet. Oh, probably. And so now, this is the moment. Well, they start blowing up the place. Oh, my gosh. All of the explosions. Over the top. Action. Mm-hmm. Left and, and, right. and the cliche of you know, explosions with the people, just like the stuntmen, just kind of flying off the buildings. Yeah. It, it reminded me a lot of the A-team. That's mm-hmm. what it felt like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what did you say? Uh, earlier, I was saying that, again, a lot of this movie reminded me of the A-team, but I felt like the A-team did it better. What did you think of the, the first showdown that we get when we have Wilkes and McQuaid going head to head in a bulldozer and in a half track? Uh, it, it was a slow motion so, showdown. Yeah, I again, it, it it's a it's something that I've seen a dozen times. Right, as soon as McQuaid gets into the bulldozer, Lethal Weapon Three. As soon as um, what's his ass Wilkes gets into the tank thing and they start half going, track, they start heading towards each other. Rambo Three with the fucking tank in the helicopter. You know, you see it all the fucking time, but. I thought it was pretty comical because, I mean, it's a bulldozer. I kept thinking Raleigh thought he was going to win in that little totally right. Yeah, yeah, but he doesn't, and so now they have to square off mano e mano. What'd you guys think of this final fight? I was really uh, in uh, in enjoying watching David Carradine's uh, fighting style when, when they were both on the screen together side to side. And, and we have David Carradine left frame and, uh, and Chuck Norris right frame. I really enjoyed watching David Carradine in, in his uh, fighting style. Yeah, Chuck Norris was asked about David Carradine's fighting style and what was his response to it? Uh, David Carradine is much of a martial artist as I am an actor. I did feel like, you know, David Carradine's style was very reminiscent of exactly what he did in that old Kung Fu series. Kind of with that that slow kind of arm waving and... Yeah, well, and and I'm pretty sure that's why he got this part, Mm -hmm. right? Because of Kung Fu and they wanted it to be martial Mm -hmm. artsy. I guess John Saxon was also up for this part. Um, And we know him from, you know, our Nightmare on Elm Street movie. But um, and Enter the Dragon. Well, I know, but I'm just going more with Nightmare on Elm Street. What What about you? What What did you think of their final fight? Uh, I thought it was very final fighty, uh, kind of by the numbers and kind of what you come to expect in the final showdown in our movies. Uh, after that, you know what I mean. the The protagonist fights the antagonist, and the protagonist usually comes out on top. So. What I what bothered me most about this fight was that Chuck Norris didn't get to finish him with his hands. I thought that was weird. I thought it was weird that he got away 
and then the Chuck Norris picks up the fucking grenade that well, Action Jackson it, throws to him. Yeah. And he throws it and it all blows up. And I'm thinking, wait, is he fucking dead? That was my thought. I'm like, could they be setting up for a sequel here? Because whenever you don't see the bad guy die, especially like in a Bond movie or things like that, it always leaves room for someone to come back. Yeah. And I'm thinking that was kind of a lame way out. And then I come to find out it's in David Carradine's fucking contract. He can't die, you know, hand to hand combat in a movie. So they did the next best thing and blew him up, which, you know, one of our criterias was an oh crap death by the villain. And I, this one doesn't have it. Yeah. I, I don't count it unless you see the villain die. Yeah. This, this one, I have to say the, the villain's death and this was disappointing to me. Mm -hmm. So, so when the, when the two of them were fighting each other, the music that is playing is organ, it's organ music. In, during the first part of the fight and then once sally is struck by wilkes then it changes to horns and it's okay now he has a reason to kick his ass right and then what does what does wilkes accidentally do he shoots lola fatally was it an accident well i think he's, well, I think he's meaning to shoot somebody yeah but did you see the expression on his face when he did it he could see he was genuinely upset well, that's what you get for being a douchebag, dude. Yeah, because you, you got the impression he really did care about her. Yeah, maybe. Um, In his own psychotic way. Yeah, and so again, this is another trope. Uh, something we see happen all the time, self-sacrifice. And, you know, it kind of makes sense that she does die. Because the movie is called Lone Wolf McQuaid. So at the end of the movie, he's still got to be the lone wolf. And now he is. I love when in these of. movies, especially this kind of movie, that how long had they known each other? A week, maybe two weeks, and she's already professing her love to him? Well, she was hanging around his place a lot, too. Yeah, that was pretty quick to be, I love you. This guy. He doesn't I, like love. No, he doesn't. He's very skeptical and, you know, just doesn't buy it. Maybe, you know, love at first roll in the mud. <laughs> why because they were in the mud i'm just saying maybe that's where they fell in love i don't know <laughs> no. maybe she saw what was in his fridge and loved him for that i don't know it d but it doesn't matter because she did love him yeah whether it was cleaning out the fridge <laughs> shooting water up his ass <laughs> or rolling in the mud whatever sometime in there getting she fell shot at, at betraying know. him twice you yeah know. i mean he's fucking chuck norris he's fucking lovable so our bad guy is dispatched. And Falcone shows up in a helicopter. And this makes an easy way for our heroes to leave Mexico. Uh, they take... Well, Falcone looked a little pissed. Well, he was. He got left there. I don't know why Falcone's there in the first place. I didn't get that either. Well, why he why had, show up? Because he had made a deal with McQuaid. Don't you remember when he says, I get what I want and you get what you want? Well, what did he want? He yeah. wanted the arms. He basically said when he when he lands. Oh, he got the he wanted the guns. He right, makes right, a right. comment that you blew everything up. Where all my arms are gone. Right, 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 right. Um, but it doesn't matter because the Mexican federales are on their way and they're going to take care of Falcone anyway. I got a question, sir. How does McQuaid get his truck back? Because he left it in Mexico. That's not a long drive from El Paso. It's not a long drive from El Paso. It's not out of the So realm. he probably went went ahead, drove back down, you know what picked it up. No, you know what happened that we didn't get to see? And I could be wrong. What happened was 
there was no room on the chopper for Keho. So he said, hey, kid, why don't you drive that back to fucking El Paso for me? I got another question. What did you think about um, McQuaid just leaving Lola there? He, you know, she dies in his arms and he's like, okay, she's dead. Kind of like the, the when the wolf dies. What's he supposed to do? I don't know. I thought maybe if he had some sort of feelings for her, that maybe she would go back with him. But granted, there's no room in the helicopter, so eh, we'll just leave her there on the ground. Yeah, so what's he supposed to do? I don't know, but I'm thinking at the same time, kind of cold. Yeah, I mean, it is, but what are you going to do? <laughs> you know what? I kind of want to, I wish they might add this in like as a deleted scene that they go back to the truck and it's just been stripped. Why? Why would you, you want, want to, to see that? it up on blocks? He parked it in a poor neighborhood. They're going to sell it off for parts. No, you no. don't know that. It's for in the middle certain. of the desert. It's it's in the middle of the desert because yeah. they drove out to where it, uh, I guess so. where where this location was, which was in the middle of nowhere. Remember the airplane flight? Mm-hmm. Oh, for fuck's sake! You guys are killing me. So, so we sort of have a happy ending. Sort of. I I think it's a happy ending. McQuaid is being McQuaid, right? You think he's. He he's retiring. He's giving it all up. He wants to spend more time with his family, but there's something inside him that just won't let it die. You know what I mean? He's a lot like uh, Nicholas Angel from Hot Fuzz. He just can't turn it off. He tried, and he is trying, but he can't do it because as soon as Keho comes up and says, um, "Yo, we got a situation." He's like, eh, okay, well, fuck your situation. I'm still going on vacation. But they got hostages. And that's the magic word. That's all you needed for J.J. McQuaid to spring into action. If there's hostages involved, he has to go take care of it. So. He is a ranger in his heart. That's right. So, yeah, that is Lone Wolf McQuaid. And, you know, the end of the movie, it, it seems pretty fitting. It's kind of the end to McQuaid's quest. Did you say quest? Good job, Don. And now it's time for John's... ...moment. This is the point in the podcast where I relate the movie that we're reviewing to one of the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. So let's start with the basics. J.J. McQuaid is our Frodo. He is the main hero of our story and the one on a journey. His daughter represents the Shire, while his work makes him a solitary hero and his journey takes him farther and farther away from home. She's the one, she's the thing that inspires him to get back home, to complete his journey so he can return back to her, basically returning back to the Shire. McQuaid's fellowship consists of Ramos, Dakota, and Jackson. I'd like to throw out the FBI agents as Mary and Pippin, but they come off more as incompetent and, then, and less comical, plus they really don't help our hero at all. For Gandalf, I'm going to go with Dakota. He's got the years and the wisdom. While they don't really explore it, he does give off that mentor vibe. Plus, he dies before the end of the film, just like Gandalf the Grey. For Sam, I'm going to go with Trooper Akedo Keo Ramos. In Lord of the Rings, Frodo often tries to ditch Sam for his own good, much like McQuaid does in this movie, as well as just being a dick. It's Ramos' dumb determination that is reminiscent of Sam, 
that eventually allows McQuaid to see the benefit of working with others. Regarding Aragon, Chuck Norris is such a badass in general that I'm going to basically label him, because being such a leader, as also Aragon and Frodo, because again, he's Chuck Norris. Like Strider, he starts out as a loner in the beginning, but he embraces teamwork to make the dream work attitude by the end and embraces his full Aragon leadership attitude. Sauron is definitely Raleigh Wilkes. While he does on occasion get his own hands dirty, he usually sends out his minions to do his dirty work. He's definitely our big bad. Now for the hard part. What is the one ring in Lone Wolf McQuaid? In previous movies, I've said pride and the walls our hero puts up to keep others out is the precious, is the one ring. This is often a hero trope used in many 80s action films. McQuaid obviously has both of those in volumes, but it's slightly different with McQuaid. It's his need to work alone. In the beginning, he pushes everyone away, sometimes even on the verge of getting violent. I wouldn't label it pride or walls, but more of a stubbornness that stems from not wanting others to get hurt and basically being a loner. He's set in his ways. It's not until he starts letting others work with him that he's able to complete his journey by taking the bad guys out and saving his daughter. If I had to pick a moment in the movie where J.J. destroys the ring, it's when Jackson opens up his truck and shows his weapon stash. Lastly, the role of Gollum. That goes to Falcone. Not because of his size or look, but because of his lurking nature and his need to get his precious weapons back, no matter who gets hurt. Now for extra credit, I'm going to throw in Snow as Wormwood. He's a sniveling side character who works with the bad guys, looks out for himself, and his cowardice allows him to turn on the boss when he's threatened. As for Captain, or as for Police Captain T. Tyler, I'm going to say he's much more of Denthor II, steward of Gondor. He's on a power trip and fights back against anyone who challenges his authority. That's my comparison of Lone Wolf McQuaid to Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. A couple things right off the bat. First of all, you keep saying it is the greatest uh, series out there, and tonight you said one of the greatest series, so I'm going to need you to make up your mind on that. Two, for the love of God, and this goes for you too, Professor, it's Aragorn, not Aragon. I have to hear that every fucking week. Aragorn. Repeat after me. Aragorn. Aragorn. Oh, you motherfucker. And three. Not bad. Not bad at all. The only thing that I would maybe question is the precious um, only because it is probably the hardest thing to find at times in these movies, but everything else I thought was pretty good. I liked your Aragorn and Frodo comparison to McQuaid. I thought that was pretty spot on. And uh, yeah, uh, KO definitely Sam. 100%. And everything else kind of fell in line with that. So for me, myself, I'm going to give you a solid B-. My question to you is, who did you say Action Jackson is in in this? I just labeled him as one of the fellowship. Well, I too, I I agree with the the, uh, Frodo Aragorn. You're welcome. Thank you. With the uh, comparison of 
because it's Chuck Norris, only because it's Chuck Norris, he gets both of them. <laughs> Fair point. Fair so, point. So yeah, I, I thought that was good. I also was, uh, I thought that was a good poll about having uh, uh, Captain Tyler being the steward of uh, Gondor. That was, I like that. That was good. And uh, I, I don't know if I necessarily agree with Sally being part of the Shire. Uh, I, uh, but um, Snow being Wormwood, that was, that was a good poll as well. Uh, head and shoulders above the rest of them. This is clearly your strongest correlation that shows that Lone Wolf McQuaig does relate to uh, Lord of the Rings. And so, yeah, I'm going to go with an A-. minus. Wow. Did you just give him an A-? minus? Yeah. And that was John's. Moment. All right, so what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this bitch? I think we should rate this bitch. It's time. Uh, Professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. If somebody says you want to watch this movie, yes, I do. Thank you very much. A one fuck movie is something where you've seen it and you have no desire to see it again. There is nothing that's rewatchable about it to you. And who knows if you would ever watch it at all ever again. And a zero? A zero is just this roundhouse kick to your face that pisses you off to no end, and you really, really wish that you were able to give that roundhouse kick back to the person that just did that to you. It's a kick to the balls. And in other words, we just don't give a fuck. All right, who wants to go first? I'm happy to go first if you'd like. All right. He's on cloud nine. I know. He's all fucking happy. So the big question is, is does Lone Wolf McQuaid deliver on our must-haves for a classic 80s action movie? Strong hero with quotable one-liners. Well, we got the strong hero, but when it came to one-liners, I think he did most of the talking with his feet. Crazy, a crazy level supervillain that only our hero could beat. Maybe back in the days of Kung Fu, uh, David Carradine was unbeatable, but in this movie, he just kind of came off as a putz. The fights were okay, but I think they could have been something more. A montage? I didn't really notice the montages, but Fresser, you did bring up a good point about some of the targeting and some of the shooting. They had a little bit of a mo- montage nature to you. Uh, chases and fight scenes? Well, the fight scenes, yeah, they, they were well done. Uh, not specifically between Chuck Norris and Carradine, but the other fight scenes, I thought that was really well done. The chase scene, as Don, you put up, I think there was only really one chase scene in this. A villain speech, again, they let their fists and their feet do all the talking. A final showdown, well, it was a machismo-fueled final fight scene with kind of a ho-hum ending. An oh-crap death for a bad guy? A grenade that most likely killed the bad guy. Franchise potential. Well, we did get Walker, Texas Ranger out of this, because I guess that's what it inspired. And a 90-minute runtime. Lone Wolf McQuaid comes in at 108 minutes, so that's close enough. Chuck Norris is an action hero's action hero. He played the role he was cast in, and he did it okay. He did it well. He was cast as a gruff, lone wolf and that's what came across on screen and he's given credit for bringing martial arts into the 80s action flick era by bringing these fights to a new level in this film beyond that the whole movie felt a little bit amateurish to me the fight scenes the stunts and the explosions 
felt like they were straight out of an A-Team episode. The dialogue was mediocre, and I felt it was lacking in our key action moments requirements compared to some of our other contenders in the action in the 80s action movie field. For those reasons, I'm giving Lone Wolf McQuaid 2.25 fucks. Sorry, Mr. Norris. Please don't kick my ass. 2.25 fucks from the comic book guy. You want to go or you want me to go? I'll go. All right, hit it. Lone Wolf McQuaid. I think that this is probably uh, the best of the Chuck Norris movies. The uh, genre of action movies can't be... The 80s action movie cannot be discussed without having some sort of a Chuck Norris representation because he's this iconic status now in Americana. And I think that he totally lives up to this because of his stoic nature and his minimalist conversation and watching him just explode when he does his fighting is engaging to watch. And I think that is clearly the high point of the movie when he is in the middle of one of his fight sequences. The story I thought was generally pedestrian. Uh, David Carradine was very likable as the nemesis, the antagonist of the film. I also enjoyed watching him uh, fighting against Chuck Norris at the end. I, I thought that for the most part, he was a good antagonist, but Falcone, that character he was laughable to me. I laughed every time that he's on the screen just because he's so absurd in, in his representation, you know, his, his giddiness, his laughter, the way that he behaves is just so comical. I didn't get Lola at all. Why she was uh, so drawn to McQuaid, but after listening to Don explain what he believes she is thinking for him i get that now and so that works for me a little bit better about the romance between the two of them for the most part it is a pedestrian movie in general it it does not flow very well ko he was a fun character and i was a big fan of voyager when it was on tv so i just enjoyed watching him as a younger actor while he was on screen and i thought that he was kind of a likable character he definitely did grow on McQuaid, and that was fun to watch. But for the most part, I uh, don't have all that much of an enthusiasm to seek the movie out again. I'm not going to shy away from it, and I feel like it's okay. And with that, I'm giving this movie 2.25 fucks. 2.25 fucks from the professor, 2.25 fucks from the comic book guy, and now it is my turn. Lone Wolf McQuaid, I can honestly say, is probably the best Chuck Norris movie out there. Uh, I know a lot of people like The Missing in Actions, The Hero and the Terror, The Invasion USA, fucking Delta Force, right? This one, I guess if a Chuck Norris movie was grounded in reality, this might be the closest thing to it, and that might even be a stretch but there's something about a chuck norris film that makes it unique and that is in fact chuck norris i think that he is a uh, icon of 80s action i think his uh quiet demeanor uh has a big presence on screen can the guy act no not really but if you really think about it neither can arnold right 
neither can Sly, neither can these big names. But, you know, the aforementioned get better with t- in time. Chuck Norris just gets more quiet, and which is fine because it works for his personality. I think that this movie was definitely a blueprint to many action movies to come out after it. There were so many scenes in here that I was watching that I would say, oh, that reminds me of this. Oh, that reminds me of that. And, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Does this movie have pacing issues? Yes. Does this movie have continuity issues? Yes. Does this movie have a bunch of other different problems? Well, yeah, it does. But at the end of the day, it is a action movie with Chuck Norris in it. I don't know if anyone's expecting Oscar level performances here because you're not going to get it. It is what it is and it's enjoyable for what it is. I have to say that, you know, I, this is the first time I've seen this movie and I'm glad that I watched it and I'm glad that we included it in this list because you went through them, uh, John. And, and I think that I agree with, uh, I agree with you on most of the criteria being met or not being met. But the fact is, uh, at the end of the day, it's still kind of a fun ride. And you have to give Chuck Norris, you know, the props he deserves. He has become Chuck Norris because of movies like this. With that being said, I am going to give Lone Wolf McQuaid 2.75 fucks. Because I think it's slightly better than an average movie. So with the professor giving it 2.25 fucks, the comic book guy giving it 2.25 fucks, and myself giving it 2.75 fucks, the average for Lone Wolf McQuaid is 2.4 fucks, which, you know, unfortunately puts it at the bottom of our list coming in behind Cobra. Now here's the question. You put Dalton and Chuck Norris in the room. Who's going to win that fight? Wow, that is a really good question. And since we've already established that Dalton would beat up Ben Richards and Cobra, now the question is, could Dalton take Lone Wolf McQuaid? I don't know. I don't see it happening. I I think it depends on the day. You know what it really depends on? What's that? Does the bar serve pearl beer? Okay, but I was thinking in a broader sense, if you have a cage match going on where you got Cobra, Richards, Dalton, and McQuaid, they're all in there together. Who comes out on top? Who comes out on top? Do they have weapons? No, it's a cage match, which means it's just you, nothing else. Well, Cobra would be taken out because I think he's mostly his weapons. No, I don't. Not at all. You I think th- he's the best think, fighter? No, I don't think he's the best fighter. I think uh, they, they're they smart, right? They team up on Richards because he's the biggest. You know, Schwarzenegger's bigger than all these guys, so you got to team up on him eliminate the biggest and then i think dalton or uh, mcquade easily takes care of cobra which is fine and then it comes down to chuck norris then it comes down to mcquade and that's what i think too uh, dalton for sure and again I, i don't know who wins that all right that is going to wrap it up for this episode of three guys in a flick if you would like to find out which 80s action movie we are going to be reviewing next You need to check out the website and any social media platforms that we are on. And speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? They can find our other podcasts, our show notes, movie trivia, and anything else we feel like posting at our website at threeguysinaflick.com. We're also available on all social media and any place that hosts podcasts. All right. So there you go. 
Uh, I just want to throw a quick shout out to Zach, Ronnie, and Jill. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And thank you to everyone else who listens. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a five-star rating because it does help the podcast grow. On some fun news, John, what do we got planned coming up here? Well, anybody who's going to the Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle, we will actually be there on the 19th, which is Friday, hosting our own podcasting panel called Podcasting 101. If you want to come and meet the three guys, we'll be there, as well as showing how we do, what we've learned, and some of our uh, tips and tricks. All right. That should be an exciting time. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. I'm not going to lie. I'm too deep in my thoughts. Yeah, I know. Do you use your left or right hand for that? Welcome to my hacienda, Mr. McQuaid. How nice of you to pay a social visit. Makes it sound like a Bond movie. Because he's a fucking Bond villain. Where did this take place? El Paso? That's in Texas. Thanks, buddy. (laughs) Oh, he's so proud of himself. Look at him. Then why are you bringing it up now? Because I'm, I'm going to say it later. You should. I'm going to. Oh, for fuck's sakes. I feel like you're just uh, a walking spoiler alert. That's what I think you are. Now I'm done. Okay? So how did this movie... Well, I'm not, but then I was going to oh, go For fuck's sake. Why do you call him an a-hole? Because the guy's an a-hole. You didn't think that Commander T. Taylor, whatever his name was, was a complete, you know, jerk. You know, you're, you're a horrible officer and... No, that's not why I was asking you those questions. He's wondering, why don't you just say asshole? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) We're here. We we sit here and we say, fuck this, fuck that. But this guy's an a-hole. That's funny. I I like a-hole better. (laughs) Yes, you do. I call people double douche and night stalker all the time. You can say Raleigh if you don't want to say Wilkes. I'm going to kick you in the balls if it doesn't work. Roundhouse. Do you say mayo or kale? I think I might have said mayo. <laughs> you said mayo. You yeah. did. What's the difference? Mayo, KO? Yeah, what's the, what's the fucking difference, guy? You don't let me say Wilkes, Wikes, Wil- You know what? You're really being a fucking pain in my ass at the moment, and I really don't fucking appreciate it. Would you say I'm being an a-hole? This is where the law stops. An honest thought. Why, 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 why do you step on my balls? Because Don sure is. Never. Don never judges. Don only speaks the truth. <laughs> and facts. And the fact is, you both are pissing me off. It was a flair yeah. to him. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know if you have a Gimli in this. No. But, but listen wouldn't. to me. Now I'm nerding out. Aragorn. All right, fuck off. Good night.